welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. Today, we're going to be talking about Mercado Libre. First off, I guess we need to start introducing ourselves because we do know there are some new listeners sometimes. So my name is Brett Schaefer. Uh, Along with me, I have Ryan Henderson. Ryan, how are we doing today? I am doing well. We just read some... uh read some mean reviews for the podcast. So uh, this is a good time to shameless plug. If you like the show, please feel free to support us by giving us a review to combat the people that uh, (laughs) aren't fond of the show. Yes. uh, Some people are very mean on the reviews. We know that it's not everyone out there. And since people do listen, that people must be enjoying the show. So if you like it, the easiest thing to do is to give us a five-star review on either Apple or Spotify. As well, housekeeping items. If you want to watch this on uh, video, however it is. It's just a simple Zoom recording uh, and we might do some screen sharing along with it. But regardless, we know some people enjoy that. You can watch the video on either Spotify or YouTube. And along with the show, we might be referencing charts or any sort of data that we put into the newsletter. You can sign up to the newsletter for free and check out all the charts and tables along with each episode. That'll get sent out Tuesday morning when this gets released. Okay. We're talking Mercado Libre today. This is a very interesting company, complex. We're not going to be able to cover everything today, but I think we can explore some things that can hopefully springboard maybe some ideas for other people to research while getting the basics of the business. But first, let's talk about uh, our sponsor, our exclusive sponsor through the end of 2022, and that is Seven Investing. You guys already likely know about Seven Investing. We've talked about them for over two months now on every podcast on Chit Chat Money. But through the end of 2022, uh, they are doing a special offer where you can get $1 off, or excuse me, not $1 off, $1 only for a free trial for seven days. And if you use our code MONEY, which gets you $100 off your annual subscription, you can get the seven-day trial for free while also getting the $100 off the annual subscription if you decide to stay. So right now, if you've been on the fence, if you thought, oh, I want to check out 7investing, now is the time to do it because you can try it out for free, check out their immense library of research reports and check it back in with us and say, okay, it was definitely worth it. I'm a paying subscriber. Um, so yeah, anything else to add, Ryan, before we kick things off? No, I know we've we've talked about it on the show all the time. So uh, I'm, people probably get tired of us saying it, but there's honestly never been a better time to try it out because it's literally you're getting if you've never done it you get the full experience for free they've had a and if you've done it before you get they've had a whole bunch of different write-ups since then so it's a good chance to look at all their research and, and see whether or not it's it's worth it for the year so definitely yeah definitely check out they 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 are bound to have a stock you are interested in check out if the research report kind of aligns with how you look at things and if it does I would say, you know, use our code, get $100 off the annual subscription. Remember, it's code MONEY, link in the show notes. All right, let's get to the actual content here. Ryan, we're talking Mercado Libre. Try to say what they do because this is a very complex business in Latin America. Yeah, it took me a while to get to everything, but they are the largest internet marketplace in Latin America. I guess the good way to encapsulate them in a single sentence, they operate in 18 countries, but the bulk of their revenue comes from Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico. Um, and they service, or at least this last quarter, they serviced more than 88 million unique active users across their different products. And I think you had it in there. It's more than 100 million active users each year. So, um, or at least it was last year. So it, it's huge and it's by far the largest marketplace in Latin America. But there's a, several different elements to the business and uh, I'll break them down into the six categories that they t- talk about. So the first one, this is the one that's basically the engine for 
the business. And this is Mercado Libre's marketplace. It's their e-commerce platform. This is where it gets parallels to Amazon. Um, if so, if you ever hear people refer to Mercado Libre as the Amazon of retail, this part is very similar. It gives buyers and sellers a secure place to transact online. And it's on pace to process more than $30 billion worth of merchandise volume this year. That It is functionally very similar to Amazon retail. And it gives them the capability to monetize additional services. So they have a really large logistics footprint that allows them to deliver most orders within two days. And they also sell a number of the items themselves. So first party sales, in addition to having third parties sell on there and obviously having the footprint uh, allows them to offer logistics services to their customers. And that that's another segment. I'll touch on that in a second. But the second one is Mercado Pago, um, which is their payments business. And this was initially started to help process payments on their own platform, but it's since grown into a more, basically a, one of those ca- super apps with a uh, fintech super apps where it's co- kind of a comprehensive digital wallet. And so um, Pago Mercado Pago offers a white label solutions that retailers can also integrate into their own website. So let's say you're, um, you've got an online site, you're maybe selling some products on Mercado Libre's marketplace, but you also have your own website where you want to um, sell goods off the platform. You can integrate Mercado Pago's payments processor into your website seamlessly. And then Mercado Pago just takes its take rate on on all the transactions. Um, and it's one of the easiest ways to get set up for uh, payments online. The other part of the business that's kind of grown is the peer-to-peer functionality. So if you're an app or a website user, similar to like the Cash App or Venmo, you can transfer money to other users. Um, as of last quarter, Mercado Pago had 42 million active users and 22 million of those are wallet payers. So for reference, the current estimate for the Cash App is just over 40 million MAUs. This is about half the size of the Cash App in in terms of uh, people using the actual uh, Mercado Pago wallet. And then the 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 other businesses, marketplace and payments comprise the majority of the revenue. But other ones include logistics, which is called Mercado Envios. Basically, this is Mercado Libre just <clears throat> just offering its sellers access to the fulfillment and warehousing services. So sellers don't have to choose this, but it allows if you're a seller, it allows you to offer more discounts to your customers and it can fulfill orders much faster than the typical third-party solution. Um, the other one is ads. This is another classic example of leveraging your scale as an e-commerce marketplace. Uh, if you're a merchant or even an external advertiser, you can promote your items on the market on the various marketplaces that they have. So these include like product searches, banner ads, um, suggested products. It it really is just very additive, both for merchants because it's prime real estate, but it's also a margin accretive if you're a Mercado Libre. And then the other two businesses, one of these is maybe uh, a low light for me if you're looking at the business. And that that is the Mercado Credito, but at the same time, you could see the opportunity here. So Mercado Libre provides loans to different stakeholders basically two different stakeholder groups that they serve. So it provides working capital loans to its sellers. um, And then it provides personal loans to consumers. Initially, this was loans to basically help consumers buy items on Mercado Libre's marketplace or through other sites that have Mercado Pago as part of the checkout process. But in 2019, they began extending personal loans to recurring borrowers for off-platform purchases as well. The whole credit portfolio has gone from $284 million to in, in the third quarter of 2020 to $2.8 in Q3 of 2022. So it's 10x over the last two years, um, which is potentially... I always get a little worried when I see a loan portfolio grow that quickly because it makes me feel like maybe isn't enough underwriting discipline, but $2.8 billion in total loan portfolio value uh, isn't like, it's not terminal for the business. Like it wouldn't kill the business, um, but it could obviously, if if some of those more loans than are expected to be uncollectible are uncollectible, then uh, you, you've got a potentially large write down there uh, on your on your loan portfolio. So last one I'll talk about here is 
storefronts. They call it Mercado Shops. This basically, uh, this is where it's similar to like a Wix or a Squarespace or a Shopify. It allows sellers to easily set up the, basically a digital storefront that where Mercado Libre acts as the host. And we should have mentioned that this is the start of our website slash e-commerce month. And so this is where it kind of has that similarity to Wix and Squarespace. It's probably why we sort of included it, um, but it's zero cost to set up if you're a seller using uh, Mercado Shops. They instead just pay commissions on transactions that flow through their site. So um, really, they provide a lot of value to other sellers, merchants, and consumers in a number of ways. The two big ones there are Mercado Pago and Mercado Marketplace. Let's talk history briefly. Not a whole lot here. Uh, it was founded in 1999 by Marcos Galperin. He was attending graduate school at Stanford. That's kind of where the idea started. Um, he was helped by two other students, Hernan Caza and Stelio Tolda. Stelio Tolda, I believe, is the current CEO, unless I'm wrong, Brett. Um, I can confirm that while you're talking. Okay. Uh, that was as of, I was reading a report from, I think, two years ago. So, uh, but one of the founders, and I, or I guess you would call him one of the co founders. And initially, the idea was that this was going to be a consumer to consumer marketplace in Argentina. At the time, this is when eBay was really big and Galprin seemed to be living in Silicon Valley with Latin American heritage and background. He thought it would be easy, I guess, or, or, the opportunity was large to replicate what eBay was doing in Latin America. And apparently financial backers thought he could do this as well because he got tons of funding, including from JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, GE Capital, plenty of others. And then within two years, eBay actually acquired a 20% stake in the business. Basically, all this funding allowed them to continue opening operations throughout different countries of Latin America. And then by 2007, they had, I want to say, $50 million in revenue, and they were actually gap profitable. And that allowed them to raise $300 million during their 2007 IPO. Um, they were actually the first Latin American tech company to be listed on the NASDAQ, kind of a fun fact there. And since then, they've used all their excess cash to continue building out the logistics infrastructure. And they ventured into some of the other operations that I, uh, that I mentioned earlier, that's kind of the history was kind of limited from what I saw. It sounds like Galperin was pretty entrepreneurial in college and seeing that he went to Stanford graduate business school. I, I think he, uh, it kind of helped him receive some funding from a lot of the Silicon Valley players. Yeah, <clears throat> he seems very, very smart. I'll cover a little bit more of that later. Uh, and just to confirm, Stelio Tolda is the current CEO, COO, so still there. Let me hit industry and competition. The e-commerce industry in Latin America is expected to only be around $100 billion in USD um, in 2022, but is growing really, really rapidly. So projections are for hit about $160 billion in 2025. and Given the GDP per capita of a lot of these nations, uh, the existing delivery infrastructure, which is pretty darn weak compared to how a lot of the uh, United States, East Asia, or Europe are, uh, or were before these e-commerce players started investing there. Uh, and then you also have internet penet penetration being behind the curve. Um, you can see why e-commerce is behind the curve, curve compared to United States, Western Europe, and East Asia. Now... The one question I had is there any reason to think Latin America won't follow the same path as the United States with e-commerce penetration, but it's just maybe 10 years behind? What are your thoughts, Ryan? Well, this maybe uh, foreshadows part of my, I guess, highlights and lowlights. Uh, I don't know would be my answer. Like I, I haven't been to enough of the Latin American countries to understand whether or not the infrastructure like the delivery infrastructure could get there or is that going to be just not invested in for a long time and then they kind of have this like big like do they need the buy-in from the government that just isn't there um that's i would think that mobile penetration would get to similar levels to the western markets but i i worry that that's like my naive Western markets take, which thinks like everyone can just replicate what we're doing. Yeah. 
I think that's fair. But I would say Mercado Libre is trying to do it themselves. So maybe they're going to force it upon all the countries because they're building out essentially copying Amazon. So they might force it whether anyone helps them or not. But I would think it's, eh, it seems likely, but yeah, it's not a guarantee that it's going to follow the same, the same path. Um, if we look at competitors or one more thing there, Ryan. Yeah. I would say like Brazil's their largest market. I've been to Brazil for like, uh, two well, weeks you, one time. And yeah, but that was 10 years ago, right? It's probably entirely different now. I mean, Ricardo Libre was tiny back then. Yeah. Uh, I would just like, it feels a lot of the flats, you have a lot of people living in really dense space and then a whole <laughs> bunch of basically nobody living for a while. I guess it's not that, that different than the cities in America, but uh, just more so, a little more so. Yeah. So I don't know if that helps in terms of profitability on deliveries since you're spending less time on the road, but I think that would similar to East Asia, but Mexico, Mexico and Argentina might be different. They're not people, for sale. people from Latin America might be listening to this and like laughing, but no, it is they, they, their population's dense. Uh, they have, you know, or in Brazil, at least in those big cities. Yeah. But again, there are, there are nuances that we're probably missing if you're, if you live there versus not. Yeah. All right. You want to talk competition? Yeah. So there's two big competitors uh, with, uh, well, there's offline commerce. And then I guess the structural comp- competition with delivery infrastructure that is tough. Um, offline commerce as a percentage of, I think, retail is larger in Latin America, or at least most of the areas that Mercado Libre is in versus, say, like I mentioned earlier, the United States or East Asia. So they're competing with that as kind of the structural competitor, which is nice because that's easy and there should be that trend that they can follow. But within e-commerce, there's two big competitors and that is Amazon itself and then Shopee from C-Limited. Amazon has a decent presence in Mexico and Brazil, but only really operates in large countries in that region. Um, The main competitor is Shopee from C Limited. I have a table broken out, and this is just taken at, I think, a couple of days before this recording, a breakdown of the App Store rankings of Google and Apple across all the important nations for Mercado Libre, Amazon, and Shopee competition. And if we look at it, uh, Shopee and Mercado Libre are clearly ahead of Amazon. But if we go to Mexico, uh, Mercado Libre is the clear winner. If we go to Apple, or excuse me, Argentina, uh, Mercado Libre is the clear winner. I don't even think Shopee was in there uh, because I, I didn't find them in, in the rankings at all. Uh, but if we go to Brazil, it's a tighter competition with Mercado Libre as the third ranked downloaded app and then Shopee is the second and the fourth. So we'll talk about those dynamics later, but seems promising for the competition in Mexico. Um, but Brazil might be a tougher market where Shopee is getting a lot more traction. Let's move to management. Oh, anything else, Ryan? Do you know who the number one player was in Brazil? Brazil, I think it was uh, Shein. So it's not really a competitor because it's you know that, that's like a fashion website. So it's not for a, a full blown. I, 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 technically, that's a competitor, but we would kind of agree that's more for the. I'm going for the broad. Yeah. Uh, websites. All right, management and ownership. Again, like Ryan mentioned, Mercado Libre is run by the founder, Marcos Galperin. He's about 50 years old, uh, also the chairman of the board, graduated with Stanford with that MBA. Dare I say that the comparisons to Jeff Bezos are pretty apt here. And we got a founder who's been around for a while, still fairly young. Um, When I look at the age of a CEO, I think you have to be a bit ageist to younger people and older people, where that middle ground of 50s is probably ideal, but the 40s also can be good as well. Where it's it's a uh, how we look at it is okay. Is that person in the prime of say their working life? Are they going to put in a lot of time to this? Do they have a long runway of you know left? That's probably a decade long. And do I have to worry about them either being immature or close to retirement? And I think really no no concerns there from Galperin. 50 might be the exact ideal age for CEO, especially with one that with two decades of experience at this point. Um, stock ownership, fairly standard for Mercado Libre. They have no two-class share structure, which is nice. Uh, growth funds, as you might expect, like Bailey Gifford, 
Capital Research, and then Morgan Stanley owns shares. If we look at the table here, Bally, Bally Gifford actually owns 11.5% of the stock, which is quite a big amount. So I think that's important to note. Um, the Galperin family, which is, I'm assuming, mainly Marcus Galperin. Is it Marcos or Marcos Galperin? Uh, owns the majority of that, but it's really through his family trust, and they own about 7.75% of the company. And then if we look at board of director compensation, not, not a concern. They pay everyone pretty fairly. It's about $1.24 million in 2021. Uh, one yellow flag, which I don't think is a huge concern, but some to watch because board compensation can be important uh, in evaluating uh, culture. Uh, Galperin's brother is on the board. They still have a lot of independent directors that seem to check out and were truly independent, but you don't like to see too many family members on board of directors. Although <laughs> you could have said the same thing about Berkshire Hathaway. That's one of the best performing stocks ever. Um, also, the CEO of Brex, who is only 26 years old, which when someone's around our age, we get concerned because that's a lot of responsibility for a young person. They are, uh, excuse me, that person is on the board, the CEO of Brex. I don't really like to see that because it seems like, well, w- why? That person's, you know, supposed to be focused on their startup, right? It doesn't matter that they're they're working at Brex, but again, that that doesn't seem like the best board of director to me. Uh, but that's a bit nitpicky. If we look at executive compensation, uh, I hope I forgot to do the calculation here. It was only thirty-five million dollars in twenty twenty-one, which is not that high of a percentage of gross profit. I actually forgot to calculate it, but let me tell everyone. I mean, the company did almost $10 billion in revenue over the trailing 12 months and $700 million in operating income. So they're not overpaying, I don't think, versus how large this business is. Although we'll get into maybe uh, Galperin still pays himself, which again- It's more, that's, it's more, than, not, five, more than $5 billion in gross profit, right? I, I would think so, but again, I forgot to calculate it. Uh, but again, you know, $700 million in operating income over the trailing 12 months versus yeah. $35 million in executive compensation. Not crazy. Definitely not the worst we've ever seen. Um, if we look at Galperin himself, he pays himself a handsome salary. I don't think this is, I don't necessarily like this for someone who owns a big chunk of stock, but it's not a big concern. And they are based on some solid metrics, which speaking of, Mercado Libre has what I would call refreshingly aligned executive compensation. Uh, it is complicated, but I'll go through say maybe the basics for any investor and what they should understand and why we kind of like this. So one, they have a small base salary each year. Two, they have annual cash bonuses based on net revenue, operating income, total payment volume, which is total payment volume through Mercado Pago, shipping time, and net promoter score hurdles. Um, they are unique hurdles but all of them check out, I believe, as good incentives for those annual cash bonuses. Now, the one that's more unique is the long-term retention plan, which they call the LTRP. It is paid out over six years subject to executives staying employed. It is divided equally over the years, and half of the bonus can get larger or smaller based on where shares are trading at that time. It's very unique, and I like it. And again, these are, uh, or I should mention, that they are not paid in stock options. They're paid in cash, which I, I like as well, where you're not having the complications with that. Um, you give someone cash, whether the, if, the, if the stock price is double where it was, they probably get a little bit more cash than you don't what they actually would have. You don't what? You don't adjust it out. That's right. They don't talk about adjusted EBITDA. They don't measure all this on adjusted EBITDA. They measure basically over a six-year period if the executive's still there so that incentivizes you to stay at the company, they will pay you a nice cash bonus, which isn't too large either. It's in the few millions of dollars, which is great. But again, everyone's kind of aligned. And you might worry a bit about being too incentivized to drive up the stock price, but I don't think it's that bad in this situation. Um, Yeah. And then my only issue I had was really Galperin. He pays himself a lot of these bonuses. Uh, as a percentage of executive compensation while also owning a ton of stock. It's not huge compared to some of the other things we've seen, like maybe a, you know an Elon Musk at Tesla or some of the other ones, but eh, a little nitpicky with that, but I, I, didn't, I didn't love it. He doesn't need the money, let's just say, right? He has, if things go right, what's his stake worth? A few billion dollars? Well, you know, What is the $20 million each year going to do with that? Okay, let's get to how the company's been doing. Ryan, let's go through the earnings. 
Yeah, last 12 months, uh, just to give sort of a more rounded encapsulation here, it did $9.7 billion in revenue. Um, that they're they're encroaching here on the $10 billion revenue mark, 53% gross margins, and then basically 17% free cash flow margins over the last 12 months. That was a little elevated than prior years. Um, generally, I've found that it's right around 10%. If I'm not mistaken, Brett, you kind of had a chart um, that yep. talked about it. Yeah, it was uh, their free cash flow is definitely elevated right now. I would 100% be tracking operating income as well as free cash flow and operating margin as well as free cash flow margin because typically, uh, yeah, they're so one, um, I think it was their operating cash flow. I don't have it in the table exactly of what the the line items were, but there were some things on working capital that made operating cash flow just elevated this year or over uh, the trailing 12 months, right? Right. And then I guess the most recent quarter, it was probably slightly elevated as well, but not, not quite as bad. So um, <clears throat> I guess the big metrics to track here are total payment and total merchandise volume. Um, so payment volume is referring to everything going through Mercado Pago. And then um, merchandise volume is the actual merchandise or goods that are being exchanged in the marketplace. Total payment volume this quarter was up 76% on a constant currency basis. Um, however, they kind of have a... Uh, well, I, I guess the constant currency is the one to look at, but report, reported currency... Um, I believe they struggled with because of they're converting it back to U.S. dollars, and there was significant inflation within uh, a lot of the markets that they operate. And then the other metric that I think is important to pay attention to is take rate. But there's take rate can kind of be loosely defined. I basically look at it as revenue as a percentage of um, logistics marketplace and payment volume, um, which has been right below 20%, um, which has grown over time as the value of their services uh, that they provide to buyers and sellers has grown over time as well. But revenue is growing 45% on a reported currency basis, 61% constant currency in the last quarter, $2.7 billion, so on pace for that $10 billion in annual revenue. FinTech is the fastest growing segment, and Argentina is the quickest growing geography. Um, other other things worth reporting: eighty-eight million unique active customers. That's growing. So their active customer base, despite being the largest player in a lot of these markets, is still growing. And at this quarter it was eleven percent growth year over year. And then total payment transactions are growing sixty-six percent year over year. So if you're wondering why the payment volume or the the all the, all the volume flowing through the platform is so much faster than the actual customer growth, it's because they're uh, making more common use out of Mercado Libre's services. Last thing I'll mention, 11% operating margins this quarter. I guess just kind of summer, summarize uh, the business, it's generally slightly low margin when we look at it compared to like, we just had a whole month worth of engineering software stocks. If you look at it relative to those, it's slightly lower margin just because of the nature of the e-commerce business. However, fairly profitable for an e-commerce business. And I think a lot of that is driven by the the growth, the payments business that they've been able to tack on. And then um, they're doing about, well, we're, I'm going to talk about the debt here in a second, but they are not in any sort of financial crunch and they've consistently shown an ability to generate cash and, and generate profits. So, um, Let's talk balance sheet real quick. This is probably one of the more complicated balance sheets I've ever looked at because, and I'm not sure what the rationale or the reasoning is for this, but they have borrowings in pretty much all their companies of operation. So they've got like Chilean debt, Argentinian debt, or Argentine I'm, debt. I'm guessing that's currency. Uh, so they don't have oh. say, some sort of currency mismatch that screws them over. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess they could. Couldn't they also default in one business without defaulting? That's probably another reason. Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, that's not. It doesn't matter. Really, it doesn't matter for this podcast. Yeah, 
It doesn't matter, but uh, I'll, I'll try to go through the parts real quick. And uh, let's talk assets first. So a billion and a half in pure cash and cash equivalents, and then $1.9 billion in short-term investments. So basically $3.5 billion in really liquid assets. Um, they also have another $400 million in long-term investments. I don't usually include that because typically that's things like equity securities where they buy stock in another company, but I looked at it. It's just long dated government debt. So I kind of threw that in there as well. Um, I'm not sure why they didn't just make that short term, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, so $3.8 billion in cash like assets is what I'll call it. Um, and then basically they, they classify their borrowings as loans payable. So $4.7 billion in total loans payable. 42% of it is current. So you've pretty much got less than a billion dollars in net debt is the way to look at it. And then I'll go through each line item. But like I said, it's tons of different types of loans payable. Um, so I'll kind of summarize it afterward and talk about the important ones. They have loans from banks, bank overdrafts, secured lines of credit, financial bills, deposit certificates, commercial notes, finance lease obligations, collateralized debt, 2028 notes, 2026 sustainability notes, 2031 notes, and other lines of credit. The the three things to pay attention to here are the loans from banks, the convertible notes, and the collateralized debt. So they have a billion and a half in convertible notes, um, really low rate debt on all of these. Uh, 2026 is 2.4%, 2028 is 2%, 2031 ones are 3.1%, so really low. Are they they all convertible? Not the... Not a huge deal, but just because the interest rate was different, I was just wondering. I can't... I don't know if the sustainability ones were, gotcha. which are the 2026 notes. Um, Not too relevant though, because they're similar interest rates, low single digits. No, 2028. The 2028 notes are the only ones that are convertible. And okay. those are at 2% interest. Um, that's the lowest lowest rate that, that they have. And the, uh, they raised those at a really good time, sort of during 2020. And I think everyone that raised at a good Everyone that raised in 2020, we look back and say, oh, they raised a, a really good rate. But um, they now have the cash to finance a lot of their operations. They're already cash flow positive. So um, I, I thought it was taking advantage of their kind of strong position already. Um, so a billion and a half is the notes. The other 1.2 billion is collateralized debt. And frankly, I'm having it, I had a difficult time understanding what these exactly are. And I read through this the description in the 10K, and it was a bit of a word salad and kind of vague, but they said the company securitizes financial assets associated with its credit cards and loans receivable portfolio. They, with that credit portfolio that I talked about, where they extend loans, that there is that adds some risk to the business. I have to, I don't understand exactly why these are loans payable and how they're securitizing them. Um, Right, because they already have the the since they are lending that out to say the credit card stuff and the other loans that they're giving to merchants and individuals. That's in the receivables that uh, I have a good chart of has really grown over the last couple of years. But it's it's strange that it would be in the payables. Maybe we're both missing something obvious here, but it just creates uncertainty for the business because again, as someone that it's a Latin American company with some collateralized debt that. There's a word salad, and what what are we what are we missing there? Why is it there? It's not that big, but it's definitely something to track if you're looking at this business. What does that line item look like on the balance sheet each quarter? Yeah, and it it doesn't matter because they have so much cash and they have enough cash flow to cover their debt like five times over. But the uh... that's why well that's why I would say track it because if it grows and it becomes a way bigger portion of the business as a percentage compared to their cash or you know all the available liquidity they have then it becomes something you more and more important to make sure that they're not um that they're going to be able to pay it back and it's not no concerns there yeah and the other big thing that's like not necessarily explicitly stated on the balance sheet but is worth looking at is the uh the the, the loan portfolio they break this out um pretty concisely on their uh 
earnings reports, it's uh, grown, like I mentioned above, or like I mentioned before. But at the same time, the days past due, the the amount of debt that hasn't been collected that should have been collected is continuing to grow really, really quick, which is cause for concern. And they're slowing, or I believe they said they've stopped uh, lending in that segment. So if they if a whole bunch of that is uncollectible, they're going to have a pretty big write down or impairment on their loan portfolio. So just another thing to keep an eye on. Last thing I'll mention in total interest expense this quarter was 92 million. So if you annualize that, it's about a 7.8% interest rate. Some of that is variable to those, so it could rise. And that might also be lumpy with the quarterly because they have so much of the debt that's current and a lot of the convertible notes are long dated. So they're probably going to have lower rates going forward because they were able to kind of capitalize on the situation in 2020. So um, I don't know. Uh, This is just a really long-winded way of saying it's a complicated debt structure, but it doesn't really matter because they have a ton of cash and cash flow. Yes. And that's why cash flow is very important. Uh, Let's talk valuation though. Let me get the terms up here. We got about a market cap of $44 billion as of recording. It's been pretty volatile out there the last couple of days. So who knows, could be up or higher uh, or lower. Enterprise value, just because of that net debt of $1.3 billion is $45.6 billion. And the three metrics I'm looking at here are EV to sales, which is not that important, but I think it's important if you want to model out what their margin structure could be in the future. Um, their EV to sales is 4.7. Now, if we look at EV to trailing operating income, it's 64.4. But remember, and again, we're not. this is not to say that the stock is cheap or anything, but what I'm looking at is the Q3 2022 trailing 12-month operating income and margins there were 7.3%. But remember, Ryan mentioned that last quarter, it bumped up to 11%. So those operating the operating earnings could grow rather quickly, and especially when they've grown revenue per share at a CAGR of 50% since 2017, which is highly, highly impressive. But let's look at the other two numbers. Yeah, we have EV to operating income of 64.4, and then EV to free cash flow is 28.5. However, remember that that free cash flow is not... Um, I don't believe that's sustainable. They do have a working capital advantage with the e-commerce business, uh, similar to how Amazon is run. However, they mitigate all that and kind of use that advantage not to generate cash, but to start loaning out money to customers. I made a nice little chart with both uh, funds payable to customers, which is that working capital advantage, lined up with credit card receivables and loan receivables, which is kind of reversing it as they're loaning money to customers. And hopefully they get money back from that and they make money off of it, but it is going to hurt cash flow. They've grown almost in tandem. And actually in 2021, credit card receivables grew faster um, and hurt cash flow. But in 2022, some of that working capital stuff reversed. Suffice to say, I would not look at free cash flow in a vacuum here. Definitely look at operating income. Definitely look at margins on operating margins when doing valuation and kind of judge on that EV to sales multiple. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, Motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Okay, let's get to the more fun stuff. Anecdotal evidence, Ryan. Well, we don't live in any of these countries, so it's tough, but any thoughts here? Yeah, it's actually kind of a bummer that I have no anecdotal evidence or experience interfacing with any of the products uh, or living in any of the markets because it's a bit of a low light for me. I there's I'm worried that there's especially with the Latin American companies, I look at what they say and I often think, wow, it's a wonderful business. And then I've seen people get hurt 
like especially Stone Co is a good example where it seemed like it checked a lot of boxes, and then Berkshire had an investment in it, and everyone's you know clung to that like, well, he's probably done enough due diligence, that kind of thing. And then there's kind of like a, a ticking time bomb somewhere in the portfolio that I don't know, or there's something about the markets that I don't have a great understanding for, and by markets I mean geographies that they're they're operating in. So. It's it's a bummer for me that I don't because I really like the business in theory and I, I like the everything that they're saying. It it honestly does feel like Amazon 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, and maybe I can give some anecdotal evidence. I lived in Mexico for two months and I didn't use Mercado Libre, but I wish I tried it because I didn't. I guess I didn't think about it when I was living there. Um, I tried to use Amazon. It was a pain. The shipping and delivery infrastructure in Mexico is a total pain. And I think Mercado Libre, if they're going to succeed here in building and replicating what they've done and say other markets getting strong margins, they're going to have to invest a lot in CapEx. However, that gives, I think anecdotally, that would give them a huge advantage over either Amazon, if Amazon doesn't invest in the CapEx or anyone else that has to ride because there's no UPS that's good. There's no FedEx that's good. Uh, it's really, really expensive to ship stuff uh, on its own. Amazon was not good. I just didn't use it. So I didn't use really e-commerce at all when I was there. But I wonder, because of what Mercado Libre has been talking about in their investor reports with shipping times coming down uh, and all that good stuff for the customers in Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina, I wonder if I would have had a much better experience with Mercado Libre. And it wasn't like I was in a city. So it wasn't like I was back in some little resort on the beach. It was where uh, the people they're targeting, the citizens that live there over the long term would be using as well. But it's interesting. I also think that given that position in a lot of their markets where the delivery stuff is not up to speed or up to where it is in a lot of the Western markets, that gives them a ton of room to invest in the business, especially the, the logistics while getting solid returns on invested capital, which seems great. Um, and that kind of leads up into the future growth opportunities. Ryan, you have logistics here, right? Yeah, I know it's it's boring, but it feels like the part, or it, it feels like this is how they solidify their moat the most out of any other segment of the business, which is simply investing in that fulfillment center I feel like that's a very basic thing to say for an e-commerce business, but they that that's going to be the biggest differentiator between them and their competitors. And it's at from my understanding, it's at such a stage that it's even worth. If, yeah, it's yeah, so much worth to do it. Mm -hmm. It's such an advantage relative to their peers. Exactly. I'm going to share my screen for a quick second to show the chart here. Of let me get this on the full screen one second. Okay, Ryan, you seeing this on capital expenditures? I mean, in 2017, so say five years ago, they did 55 million dollars in capex, and in 2021, they were at close to 600 million, at about 573 million dollars. The amount of capex they put in has been astounding, and each year they've done this, they've been free cash flow positive. So. Their ability to reinvest here, I wonder how this chart will change or grow over the next years. Are they going to be investing a billion dollars in CapEx a year? And how much of an advantage can that give them over the next decade? Um, very, very interesting to look at. And that CapEx has just exploded, especially as they've tried to invest in Mexico. Um, anything else that Ryan, before I move on to, to my... Uh, the other one for me, and this is maybe the pessimist in me, is slowing down the lending business. Um, Taking those dollars and putting it into logistics instead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, but uh, that, that's what they're doing. They they said on the last call that they're going to stop. I, I, it was either stop lending or like really tighten the the conditions on what they determine as credit worthy. Um, that. Uh, for me, I, I just I get so worried when I see that the loan volume grew 10x in two years. Like, yeah, I agree. It feels like it was being exploited. Maybe. Or did something got away from them? Yeah, luckily it didn't grow too big, but yeah, I agree. And they could have used that to. <laughs> and it was actually, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say you could have used that to invest in even more capex, and, yeah. and further try to ex- widen your moat at a at a quicker pace. Yeah, and they you mentioned the five hundred seventy million there and the purchases of property and equipment, and they actually label in the ten k they say they spent six hundred thirty million in capex in twenty twenty one. I think they also hmm. include investments in intangibles. As capex oh, okay. there, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I was I didn't include intangibles. Yeah, they do have a little bit of that. So yeah, I, I would more warehouses, more more vehicle fleets. I know they've they've bought up a lot of airplanes as well. Um, yeah, and Latin America's got yeah, it's a tough geography, just like the United States. This is not we've looked at Coupang before. This is not Seoul, South Korea. This is going from Mexico City, Guadalajara, Cabo, Cancun. Yeah, it's it's tough, and that's just Mexico. They got all these other countries as well. But speaking of which, my future growth opportunity is Mexico, which I would say, at least from a volume perspective, has been their best executed country over the last few years. If you look at the App Store rankings, shoppers are flocking to Mercado Libre in the nation. And I could see it gaining market share for many, many years once they build out, again, we talk about the infrastructure again, once they build out a better offering for consumers, especially in the large cities. I mean, you got a huge population, you got strong demographics, and you got an e-commerce industry really ripe for the taking that is behind a lot of other countries just on, say, the take-up of e-commerce in Mexico. Um, I would not be surprised if Mercado Libre is doing $10 billion in revenue alone in Mexico five to seven years from now. Now, for reference, through the first nine months of 2017, the Mexico segment did $58.3 million in sales. Through the first nine months of 2022, it did $1.26 billion in sales. Right now, the country has extremely low margins for Mercado Libre, and that's bringing down their consolidated margins. Um, But that should change, I think, over the next three to five years as expenses start to scale up. Let me share the screen once more and show some of these charts. I mean, kind of go through them because I think it's very important for anyone to look at. Um, Okay. So if you look at the difference between contribution margin between two of their different countries, you have Brazil, which has been increased, say, uh, just under 20%, something like that. But if we look at Mexico, their contribution profit was actually negative. Um, and if we look at the margin here, it has only just gone positive in that country. And there's no reason that leads it to me, me to believe that over time, Brazil and Mexico will have that different margin structures because you're selling the same exact product. So I think that's tracking Mexico's contribution margin. I think it's a very, very important uh, for investors. Would you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, and it's one of the... F- it's, it's the second fastest growing geography for them aside from Argentina. And and over five years, it's been the fastest. Let me look at it. They, they've grown that since 27 through from 2017 through 2021. Mexico grew revenue at 118% year over year. Argentina was 34%. Brazil was 54%. And yeah. Mexico has been highly impressive. And they're the number one in the app store there. So if I'm not mistaken, and the demand seems to be there. It's more about, I think, just being able to service that demand. Yep. They're winning versus uh, Shopee and uh, Amazon. So yeah. All right. Highlights and lowlights. Ryan, what do you like, dislike about this business? I think the opportunity is massive. Um, internet penetration rates from Latin America have gone from 35% to 72% over the last decade. And Latin American e-commerce volumes represent only 13% of overall sales. It's much higher in the more developed markets like the US. Well, yeah, it's getting closer to 20%, which is a huge difference. Yeah. And then the second one, and this is kind of obvious, I guess, but scale and being early. So for an e-commerce marketplace, obviously scale is huge. It provides a lot of optionality and it once you have enough users, there's a lot of ways to increase your margins, like selling the ads, providing logistic services to third parties. It and once you're kind of ahead of the game and you've got the scale, you're able to invest in your logistics infrastructure at a faster rate than your peers, which is going to further deepen your competitive advantage, which seems to be what's going on right now with Mercado Libre. I find it weird that Amazon hasn't been able to win because I would think they would have that advantage. Yeah, I don't. What's interesting is I think they maybe could, and it's 
weird because it's close to the United States. So maybe there would be some overlap, but I've read some things about how Amazon has just dropped the ball in Mexico. And I think it's because it's not their top priority. The top priorities are what? Like United States, uh, Europe, India, and then a few East Asian markets like uh, Japan. And I don't, I don't think Mexico has been their priority, and especially because they do many other things besides e-commerce and maybe Mercado Libre with their focus has uh, had a much better time. If we look at the App Store rankings again, Amazon was ranked three and five in uh, Mexico, so not bad. Uh, but Mercado Libre was one in both app stores. All right. Uh, anything All right. else, Ryan? I, I guess Mercado Pago just looks like a really solid business. I, I think it benefits from the strength of the marketplace, and it also helps the marketplace at the same time. And the there's a great network effect anytime you're able to reach scale with uh, a peer-to-peer payments provider. And it seems like Pago has been able to do that. The other one, race convertibles at a great time. So honestly, there's tons of highlights for this business. It, it, I know it's like an overused term, but optionality galore here. Um, low lights for me though, Mercado Creditos, the, uh, the loan portfolio, We've now now having watched what happened with Stone Co. and I, I don't have a complete understanding of the situation, but they basically got burnt on their loan portfolio partly because of the government in Brazil, and I think it collapsed the business or the stock like fifty percent. Uh, I I am very tentative whenever I see a giant loan portfolio. Loans past due, according to Merc- uh, Mercado Libre grew by 150% over the last nine months. Um, a lot. It's a lot. And then in their, I think it was in their press release, they said, we took a deliberate decision to slow originations this quarter as we recognize the risks associated with a weaker lending environment, particularly in Brazil. That might help them on future loans, but it, uh, I think there's a chance that they have to write down a big, big chunk of their loan portfolio, which is going to definitely hurt at least it's going to impair their assets. So um, that'll hurt profitability. Second one for me is the regulatory or legal risk. Like I, I don't necessarily trust the operating environments of Brazil and Argentina, and I don't understand, I don't know them very well. So that's the other one, which it's, and I know this is like the most boring cop out answer, but what don't I know about those markets? That's, that's a big concern for me. Yeah. All right. My highlights, uh, the execution over the last decade has been, outstanding. Uh, they copied a lot of what Amazon, what made Amazon successful, uh, but I think that is a very good thing. And on top of copying Amazon, they're building really a really legitimate financial technology company through Mercado Pago, which if was its own, if it was its own separate business, that might have, and again, that would have been a bubble valuation, but in 2021 would have gotten an absurd valuation. Um, not saying it deserves that, but again, I think Mercado Pago with the execution there, if we look at fintech revenues, they have grown uh, by 64% since 2017 and in 2021 were $2.4 billion. So just a ton of value there. And I think that makes it, it's definitely not as big as PayPal, but it's as big as someone like Square. It's probably as big as uh, Shopify's payment business. There's a lot of execution they've done there. And again, the moat should be strong with Mercado Pago with that peer-to-peer stuff, plus the switching costs with the Shopify type websites, payment processing on Mercado Libre or on yeah, the marketplace. They've executed much, much better than Amazon has in that regard. Uh, second highlight is the growth of Mercado ads. Ads, as we know, high margin can mitigate a lot of the margin risk that you have in areas where, say, infrastructure is poor or they'll need a lot of capital investment or there's foreign currency headwinds, stuff like that. Ads revenue was 1.3% of GMV in Q3 2022. That's up from 0.9% a year ago, a year ago. So it's growing faster than GMV. And I think generally, it could reach probably 3% to 4% over the long term. So there's plenty of room to increase advertisement over the next decade, and it can be extremely high margins. Um, Third one, Ryan already talked about this, and we've talked about it before, is building out the fulfillment and warehouse infrastructure uh, with, again, how little there is of fast delivery right now in a lot of the major Latin American markets. I think it could be even better for them to invest in a commerce infrastructure instead of that credit lending stuff or just prioritize that. Maybe they are now, but I think that's where the moat comes from. 
and how Mercado Libre can separate itself from competitors like Shopee and Amazon who might not be as focused in these core markets. Uh, Lowlights, though, I think the number one concern is for a U.S. investor is foreign exchange risk and political risk. Over the last decade, uh, Argentina has really kind of moved close to hyperinflation. Um, the inflation rate is currently at 88%. Brazil and other Latin American countries also have recent political track records that make me nervous uh, for business owners, to say the least. Uh, I like Mexico a lot, but the other ones, not so much. Um, and they experienced this with Venezuela, I believe. And again, I was just glancing at this because it's not, it wasn't too important for doing the show today. But they were in Venezuela. They basically had to write down a lot of that country. We know what has gone on there, the hyperinflation and all that. Um, Argentina is a huge part of this business. Highest margins for them right now. That, that's just a big concern for me. What, what, what happens if Argentina goes into hyperinflation? They almost are right now. And it seems like they're doing fine, but that's got to be a headwind eventually. Uh, second low light is the lending stuff that we already discussed. Uh, I, I'll give another stat here. Um, installment payments are now 25% plus of purchases through Mercado Pago. So if someone is making a purchase, I believe, for an item, whatever, could be a Mercado Libre, could be off of it, they're using installment payments, which is basically buy now, pay later, right? Um, they hold billions of dollars in receivables. We talked about how that you know, could be bad. Um, they also have been hyping up their AI pricing models. I I'm not sure. That just makes me, a lot of the words, a lot of stuff that's going on there makes me nervous. Um, and the other low light that also gives me a little bit of concern, but it's not a huge deal. It's not, it didn't affect the business that much was the embracing of cryptocurrency near the top of the bubble. Don't think it was a good look. Uh, wasn't a large bet, but I don't think it was good for the brand long term. It couldn't have been by trying to get all these people within Latin America to embrace crypto right at the bubble peak. Um, I think they were partnering with Paxos, and that is a really sketchy company. Everyone has missteps, but that was definitely one and is a low light for me. I would hope within Mercado Pago, they do not embrace cryptocurrency further. Okay, bull case. Let's wrap things up here. Ryan, what do you think needs to happen for this to be a good investment? Well, they have to continue growing their volume, GMV and TPV, so uh, merchandise volume and payment volume. So basically, Pago and, and Marketplace have to continue to grow and they have to sustain their take rate. Uh, Simon Erickson has actually talked uh, talked with us about this before. And he says kind of something interesting, which is that take rates are the most telling sign of whether Mercado Libre's big infrastructure investments and digital payments are being valued by the buyers and sellers on its platform, um, which makes a lot of sense. And it, I, I think it it validates the spend in those areas. And then um, I, I guess this is a bull case. So they have not only do those businesses have to grow, but I think at the current price, those the GMV and GPV have to grow by 20% annually um, over the next five years, and they have to sustain their take rate for this to be a market-beating investment. That's probably going to lead to the mental math here is like, I guess that's two and a half to $3 billion in operating income at a 10% margin, I'm guessing. So that's given, given it's a $44 billion EV. I mean, this is, I think those returns would be fine. Those returns would be good if you're getting 20% plus growth. Obviously, that's um, optimistic outlook, but they've been able to do it for the last five years. And there is a ton of different ways they can grow. And this is a business that will probably trade at a premium for, for a long time, just given their place in the markets that they serve and the opportunity in those markets. Yeah. They, I think through that logic, they, they de and especially with their track record of growth, if they're still growing at a high rate, they'll definitely get a premium. However, I think maybe the Latin America stuff should counteract that. And maybe, right? Do you agree or disagree with that? Where since it's in Latin America, I maybe would want a little bit of a discount or maybe expect that. Yeah, I get the, the uncertain regulatory environment discount, but the opportunity is so huge that I think it bodes well for future growth that it, it, I don't know if it really makes sense to give, give it a discount. Yeah. If they put up that track record of growth, even in USD terms, 
Yeah, I mean, my, my bull case is similar. Um, they, they've grown revenue, even in USD terms, at a rapid rate this decade. Uh, it was such a large market opportunity in the early days of e-commerce in Latin America. The bull case is that, the, that it continues and they start generating $30 billion, $40 billion in sales, sales annually. I think a margin ex- expand, which again, last quarter, they hit 11%. And I know there is some seasonality, so I would bet Q3 has larger margins than Q4 just because of the holiday season. Um, so if they're at 10%, if margins are at 10%, um, business could be doing $4 billion, maybe even $5 billion in operating income if they really scale up that advertising business. And the fintech stuff uh, probably will have higher margins as well, which I think you know it would equate to solid returns from this share price. You could probably s- say maybe if that happens, you'd have a double within five years. I know shares outstanding have grown a bit. Um, so that take that into consideration just for reference, they've grown at about 2.8% a year. So that could be a headwind again. I think it'll probably still stay a headwind, but yeah. Um, all right, Ryan, what's your bear case? My, I don't know if I'd call it the bear case, but I'm looking at basically two risks. Um, the first is the loan book risk. If it's not terminal, it's not big enough that like, even if they had to write off, half of their loans as uncollectible that's what 1.4 billion that's that would suck but that's not going to completely kill the business um but it could be a, obviously a headwind to earnings and there's no way that if that happened the stock would just forgive it it would be you know it, that would be reflected in stock performance second one is multiple compression i know that's also boring but anything less than 20% growth in reported currency i have just a hard time imagining that's going to lead to market beating returns. There's going to be multiple compression. You need like you, the growth needs to outpace multiple compression here. I think everyone's aware of that. I mean, look, they've grown yeah. revenue at 50% for the last five years. Uh, that is highly impressive. It's not going to be 50% for the next five. I would, well, if that happens, I mean, this is going to be one of the bus- biggest businesses in the world, but you, you need to expect that growth rate to still stay in the, healthy double digit range. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The I don't what do you think about is competition a part of the bear case here? I like Mercado Libre's competitive position, but I don't think it's as strong as maybe some other markets we've looked at. For example, Coupon in South Korea seems to have a much stronger competitive position versus anyone else where I think Mercado Libre is winning and should win over the long term across Latin America versus Shopee, where Shopee might win in a few markets. But generally, I think Mercado Libre will win. And it's probably a large enough market where there can be multiple winners. But I, the, the competition is definitely... Um, yeah, I think it's definitely it could be a bear case. I don't think Amazon is one, though. I would be... What would be interesting is to see if Amazon... Pulls away from Latin America. Um, if they did, I bet Mercado Libre would uh, the multiple would expand. Yes, and they might sell some of that whatever infrastructure that Amazon has to to them. But yeah, because Amazon wants to get profitable now. So I just kind of thought about that. Like Amazon wants to get profitable over the next five years. Do they exit this market? That's not their in their top five. The other thing I'm thinking about here is you look at CapEx. That's so CapEx has jumped. And you, if you compare it to like Amazon, they're doing $600 million a year, let's say in, in property and equipment purchases, the, the real estate in the competitive, like I would imagine that fulfillment center real estate is not nearly as competitive in the markets that Mercado Libre serves or nearly as high of, it's not going to be as high of a price tag as what Amazon's doing. So you like, I, I kind of have to keep that in perspective. And then on top of it, I imagine real estate prices have come down a bit over the last year or so in Latin America, just given what interest rates have done. I don't, I, I don't know for sure whether that's true. I know Mexico, the, the average selling prices on homes have been, have come down slightly, but um, that could, means yeah. they could be buying more real estate with the same amount of capex. Yeah, it could be a better environment if they're still growing while 
yeah, interest rates are are rising. Although if they're financing that with finance, with lease liabilities, it might not be uh, from an affordability perspective. It might be the same. Is it um, or go? Uh, ahead. Wouldn't you think a recession is almost a good thing for them? I think Here, so. Like, com- yeah. like competitive positioning wise, if you're looking out ten years, wouldn't you want every other? You would want higher cost of capital, higher barriers to entry because everyone's struggling and they're the one that's still afloat and they're the one to, that can reinvest. Yeah, I agree. I think that I agree with that. I think to a point though, we don't want Argentina get a little nervous about that inflation rate. So you don't want the countries to totally collapse. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. that's true. All right. My bear case is going to be, it's simple. I mean, the stock trades an earnings multiple north of 50. That's that's it, right? That's the bear case is that they don't grow into that. Um, I think there's some risk that margins could be permanently low. And I also think foreign exchange could be a nuisance here as they stop growing at such a quick rate. Um, and then the financial services is somewhat of a black hole for me. I can understand the e-commerce part fairly well. It's the same sort of business that goes around around the world, right? But the Mercado Pago business, um, it's just harder, harder to get, harder to understand. So, so yeah. All right. More or less interested. Let's wrap things up. Final thoughts here, Ryan. More interested. Yeah, more interested. I think this is really quality business and it feels very similar. I know it gets this parallel all the time, but it does feel similar to Amazon's retail business. Um, and specifically Amazon retail like 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What's not, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have bought Amazon 15 years ago, but um, I don't know. There's, there's definitely a lot to like about the business. The only thing really holding me back is, well, uh, valuation and then just the markets they operate in. Yeah. I like this business as well, but I do think it deserves a discount compared to other companies just because of the the countries it operates in. So yeah, I'm more interested, but I would not be more interested in actually buying the stock unless the, well, I guess at today's prices, unless the stock went down 50%, it's pretty expensive versus the risk they have. It's a double-edged, um, like the markets they operate in are a double-edged sword because there's a whole bunch of uncertainty and you don't know what inflation is going to look like and the operating environment is just very different from the US, but it's a like significantly larger opportunity for yeah. them for them to serve. Yeah, I agree. So that, that's why I'm more interested, but just no way at these prices. Um, all right, let's wrap things up. The stock for next week. Uh, I have to confirm. GoDaddy. 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 Okay. Well, their website software, a little bit on the opposite end of the spectrum because there's not as much e-commerce as uh, definitely not as much as Mercado Libre. Don't know that business solutions. They might have some nice business solutions for their. Maybe I will. Assume we will investigate next week. Um, all right. That's going to do it for this episode. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. 